0: Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey
1: towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. And the dog coughs just in time to lead us in to another episode of Central Line. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host Katie Berlin, and we have a special roundtable discussion today. I'm so excited. We have uh, four. So now we have, including me, four voices for you to try to distinguish if you're listening. So um, <laughs> we'll we'll have our guests who are three. Incredible technicians. We'll have them introduce themselves at the beginning, and then uh, maybe periodically, I might just ask you to pipe up who you are before you say something, so people can learn who's saying what. But I am so stoked for this conversation. This is um, this is going to be great. So, Natalie Busico, uh, Liz Houston, and Heather Prendergast, thank you so much for making this work. We this year, AHA said it was the year of the team. Um, Honestly, every year should be year of the team. Um, but it is nice to have that that sort of theme in mind whenever we're thinking about content, whenever we're thinking about whose voices to feature, because um it really is something that we haven't seen enough of in the profession. And one of the things that I love most now is seeing technician voices being elevated and shared and um and such a variety of perspectives from from technicians. So, this is um, going to be one of the highlights of the year on the podcast for me. So I'm going to ask the three of you to just share a little bit about yourselves, uh, what you're doing now, and what you'd like people to know. Natalie, would you like to go first? Sure, and thank you again for having me. Um, I'm so excited to have this conversation with
2: three amazing technicians. So i um, happy to be here. I am Natalie. I uh, have been in the veterinary field for about 16 years now. Um, initially, the plan, like I think a lot of people was, Um, I had that childhood dream of being a veterinarian, (laughs) so that was my initial plan, and I actually completed my undergraduate degree and two and a half years of vet school before I shifted gears and ended up kind of switching my career path um, and became a registered veterinary technician, uh, which is where I am now. I kind of went the leadership route um, through um, being a registered vet technician. Tech on the floor to being a ship lead, a practice manager, and now an area manager within a specialty. Um, so I kind of made that shift as well from general practice to specialty. I tend to like to dibble and dabble in all kinds of things. <laughs> so the current thing is cardiology, um, but I've been, you know, in oncology and dentistry. Though I just I like all the things, but, and especially the weird things that a lot of people don't tend to like, like eyeballs, like eyeballs. Yeah, <laughs> <So> like, <yes. laughs> it's always the I eyeballs. Am, I am the one that likes the eyeballs. I don't, I don't <laughs> know. Um, so yeah, currently in cardiology and kind of hoping to kind of stick here. Um, my passion is obviously elevating veterinary technicians and making sure that we're truly utilizing them in practice and um, you know really make getting the true benefit of having a technician in practice. Um, to the practice, to the staff, to the doctors, um, just to have a well-rounded veterinary team. So that's kind of my biggest passion and why I'm here now.
1: Love it and perfect for our conversation today. Um, we're going to be talking about, I didn't even say that. It doesn't matter. Like we <laughs> have the three of you just talk about whatever, but we are going to be talking about team retention today, specifically technicians. How do we keep technicians from leaving? <laughs> mm-hmm. How can we get them to not ever want to leave? Um, and that is a question that everybody I think wants to know. Um, and Natalie, what you just said in your in your bio, like I hadn't really thought about that as being something really um, you know, specific to technicians versus veterinarians that you can hop specialties if you want to. Um, yeah. You can work for an ophthalmologist for a while and then go work for a cardiologist. And it's really cool because you never have to get bored um, with one specialty. And um, you can always go back to general practice or ER. I love that so much. And I never thought about it that way. Yeah, so it's awesome. <laughs> um, all right, Liz, you're up.
3: Hi, I'm Liz Houston. I am an RVT. I actually um, hold every available US (laughs) credential for technicians. So I'm a CVT, LVT, LVMT, RVT, and I'm a veterinary technician specialist in small animal internal medicine and emergency and critical care. I have been registered for 17 years now, which seems crazy. Uh, I think... What Natalie said is so spot on. The, I'm just passionate about veterinary medicine. I, I love working in the field. I love veterinary technicians, veterinary assistants. Um, I love all, everything that we do in this profession, and I am um, very... I am very positive about the direction that our profession is taking, especially in terms of elevating the roles of veterinary technicians. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation today.
1: Love it. And that passion shows for sure. Um, we need, and we need people who are passionate both in and out of the clinic, you know, um, it takes, it takes everybody. So Heather, Thank you, I'm Heather
0: Prendergast, a registered veterinary technician. And uh, I hate to age myself, but I've been in this field for over 30 years. I can't believe that either. But um, you know, I've served every role in our practice from a kennel assistant because I was so young when I started all the way up to hospital administrator. And I would like to say that I had retired out of my last hospital that I was in for about 20 years and really started doing more consulting and helping more practices on a broader level. Because being in hospital, I was only able to impact my team. But leadership is definitely what drove me and drove the success of our hospital. And that's where I really started when I started consulting, that leadership is, is the key. And having a great leader team, having a great culture, uh, that is priority. And as I'm consulting with hospitals, while we can work on financials, the culture is the key. And if we can make the culture work and have a great place to work, which leads to employee retention then ultimately the practice is going to succeed. So that piece has really driven my passion for this industry and not willing to give up. We can get there. It just takes all of us to be able to make that happen. So that's my passion.
1: (laughs) And a worthy passion. um, And one I deeply believe into that Um, Good leaders are uh, are absolutely it's something that we have to invest in if we want this profession to grow and and evolve um, and to keep people in it, Um, because I definitely have had experiences where I know that if the leadership in place had been different, I I might even still be there, you know, and I'm not I'm. Doing this, which is great, and I love it. But <laughs> there were a lot of factors for why I left the clinic. But um, I think that it was definitely a, a big part of that in a lot of the situations I found myself in. And it's so applicable to so many different areas of vet med, like um, you know, people who work in corporate versus independent practices, and people who work in academia, and people who work outside of the clinic. Leadership is important everywhere, and it's something that none of us really have a lot of background in by the time we get into the field. So yeah, big, big uh, hearty agree on you on that there. Here's a question. Um, Heather, do you feel like when you were a kennel assistant, if someone had said, you know, leadership is going to be really important to you, and you're going to end up having all these leader positions, do you think you would have believed them? Is it something you always wanted?
0: You know, it was not something I would have believed in when I was that young. I just didn't understand enough about that role and responsibilities. that has completely shifted where yes, even kennel assistants need some leadership because they are going to be leading clients in some way. And they're going to be leading and uh, maybe another team member. And so The more that we can share the growth while it may not be as high level as it is for a practice administrator or manager i still think that they need it and that also helps them lead themselves better both personally and professionally so it's a nice way to grow individual team members even if they're just channel assistants
1: yeah for sure leading from within the team is something that um i feel like we're starting to hear a little bit more about Um, Mm -hmm. As an associate vet, I often felt sort of like in a similar boat to a lot of technicians, I think, where I just kind of felt like I was supposed to show up and do the things that I was supposed to do. And I wasn't really supposed to have an opinion about how we did them um, because it wasn't always welcome. Is that something that I could see a lot of nodding? (laughs) Natalie, is that something that in your experience you've had too?
2: Yeah. And I think it's interesting because a lot of times I don't think we give veterinarians enough credit for the leadership role that they play for RVTs and, you know, for the whole team, for assistance, for panel assistance. Um, I think it's important to recognize that because even myself, as I was learning as an RVT, even though the veterinarian doesn't have the same skills as I have, most of my mentors have been veterinarians. And so that role within the hospital is really important, I think, for us to foster it, I think, as a leader. So having been in that practice manager role and I'm currently in a manager role, I think that's important from the leadership side to kind of build that relationship between the veterinarian and the RVT um, or, the you know, any staff member really. I, I tend to lean towards the technicians because that's what I have most experience with. But I think fostering that relationship is what really helps kind of develop our, you know, the the environment that we need to be able to to ev- everyone do their job the best that they can. So.
1: Yeah. I love that. Liz, do you have thoughts on that? Oh
3: yeah. I I have thoughts on that. Yeah. I think that leading (laughs) from within is one of the most difficult things that we can do as team members. And I think so much of it is based on the, you know, this is, has become kind of the buzzword around veterinary medicine right now, but it really is about the culture of the practice Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I'll put in a plug for uh, AHA Publishing and just talk about Josh Fazeman's new book that um, oh, yeah. that just came out, which is fantastic. And I think if you have if you have an environment of uh, where of positive psychology and psychological safety, then it becomes much easier to lead from within. And I uh, would urge leaders to take a really hard look at whether your environment is fostering that kind of psychological safety so that people feel comfortable to speak up when they see something um, that is wrong or that they want to change or they see a way that they want to develop, you know, um, Dr. Berlin, Katie, I've listened to you talk enough on Central Line to know, like, you hate surgery.
1: So if you had
3: been in a... Hate is a strong word. (laughs) Hey, I hate anesthesia, so I'm right there with you. But if you had been in a psychologically safe environment, you could could have spoken up, maybe, and said to your management, hey, I don't like surgery. It's not my strong suit. Can I allow me to focus on the outpatient side on, you know, or even like if you were worked in an environment that had a hospital on the hospital side, allow me to care for the hospitalized patients, or let me do all of the client education around these diseases or whatever it might be. But when you're in an environment where it's not safe to talk about your hopes, your dreams, the direction you want to go, I think it becomes really difficult, no matter what role you're in, whether you're an associate veterinarian, whether you're uh, a credentialed technician, whether you're an assistant, whether you work at the front desk, we all have ideas about how we can make things better at the practice, not just for ourselves, but sometimes for everybody. Um, And to be shut down, to be ignored, to to feel like your voice isn't heard, I think is a major issue. And I do think that that dovetails really perfectly with our discussion today because i think that's what what forces people out. You know, that's one thing. So you you say to your boss, "Hey, i feel like i'm not i'm not growing. I want to learn more. I want to get my VTS. I want to move into leadership. How can i how can i do that?" And a boss says something like, "Well, no, i mean, you're a technician. That's what you do and you're doing what you do and there's like nowhere for you to go." Why would a person stay in an environment like that if they're told, no, there's no more money for you? There's no more responsibility. There's no growth opportunity. Um, But all of that comes from from a lack of leadership because a leader, I think a true leader is someone who is open to hearing that kind of feedback and to finding ways to maximize the team that they have. And not only... That's just going to help the team members. it's going to help the practice, it's going to help the bottom line. it's going to help everything overall. Uh, so I think that's where the leadership is really is really key, especially in terms of retention
1: that That is uh, such a good observation and as you were saying that, I was just thinking, you know, of all the people who are listening and are probably like, but in my practice, that wouldn't work. Because, you know, my favorite that I have heard many times is like, well, you can do that if you want to, but I can't pay you more. And it's like, oh, well, let me just do it out of the goodness of my heart, then that I want to like bring this special set of skills to the practice and then use them for free, especially <laughs> that they cost me money to get. Um, and I, you know, thinking about that, I'm thinking about the leaders I've had that are really good and the leaders that are not, have not been so, so great in a lot of respects. And the big difference is that when you ask them something, the good leaders don't say, we can't, and then list all the reasons that we can't. They don't automatically say yes because everything isn't possible, but they'll say, well, what would that look like if we could do that? And Then start that train of thought and they might give you homework to do like legwork. Okay. You go figure this out and then we'll see if we can make it happen. But like they don't just say no. And that is a huge, just a huge culture shift on its own. Heather, you've been in every role in the hospital. (laughs) And so I'm very curious about your perspective here. You know, we're talking about how to keep. Oh, no. Uh oh. Oh, no. As soon as I asked Heather a direct <laughs> oh, no. question, she disappeared. Oh, it's a sign. OK, <laughs> so I'm going to ask uh, because we're still recording, so hopefully she'll come back. So I'm going to ask um, you both then, like Natalie, um having grown through this profession a little bit, like the more you learn, do you find yourself thinking of all the reasons why something can't be done? Like, do you find yourself identifying more with that sort of practice owner role where their, their job is to like, keep hold of the finances and make sure we don't get too out of line on, you know, and don't set a precedent. Um, or do yes. you feel like the more you learn, the more you realize it's possible?
2: I think definitely in my like baby stages as a leader, um, I fell into that mindset for sure. Um, always thinking about, well, that's not going to work because of this. or you know, Well, what's our, our labor costs going to look like? If I add that extra technician that this doctor is saying that they absolutely need, you know, that, that's always how it starts out. But I think as you grow in the profession, kind of just similar to what Liz was saying, that the environment is what becomes important in building that culture. I, I'm going to use the buzzword too, because it's really important to me. I think it's, it's a huge part of, how we keep our technicians and how we keep any staff member really is culture more than anything. Uh, but I think as I started to learn that, then I started to look at all sides of things. Okay. What would it look like if I add an additional technician? Do we have the space to see an additional patient and, you know, make it get a return on that investment? You know, we, we can still look at it from a business standpoint, but being open to that I think has definitely been something that I have to like flex my leadership skills on and, and learn how to incorporate into my role but yeah for sure it, it started off as no like that's not going to work i'm like this is these are the reasons why that's not going to work uh, which i think that perspective also is helpful to have you know to know in the back of your mind what your challenges might be right that's still you can't ignore that there are going to be labor costs that there are going to be you know obstacles that come up that you'll come across um but not leading with that. I think leading with the yes, and then kind of sprinkling in the, the challenges and how do we work around that, I think is how you get there.
3: I think that is super challenging because I do, I get why the knee jerk reaction is a, is a no or the like, because it does, it takes a lot of effort on the part of leadership to, to, to think about how things might be different and it, and we all, you know, change is scary. And historically in veterinary medicine, we've been a little bit risk averse, a little bit <laughs> change fearful, um, yeah, just a little. Uh, so I think that part is also difficult. And I think um, the more that leadership focuses on um on like self-awareness, not just as on individual self-awareness, but kind of institutional, um, you know, (laughs) profession-wide self-awareness. I think leaders are now recognizing that uh, oftentimes they're put in a position without training, without mentorship, without uh, their own growth in mind. It's because they've been there the longest or, you know, someone they want more money and they're told the only way they can get more money is if they go into a management role, even if they don't want a management role. So I think the the industry is starting to wake up to the idea that those this isn't the best way to create leaders in, yeah. in the practice. And so now I think there's a much bigger focus on how do we make sure we have the best leaders that we can? And I think it's because we're in this moment of crisis where we don't have enough people in the profession to do the, the work, to care for the pets that we need to care for. And we have to find a way. We can't graduate our way out of this crisis. We have to find a way to keep people. We have to find a way to bring people back to the profession. I can't tell you how many veterinary technician groups I'm in where people say, I left to go to nursing school and I regret it every day. I left vet med because I because of X Y Z, and I miss it so much. I wish I could come back. I wish that I could make a living and work only one job. I wish that I was respected as a professional. I wish that my title meant something. All of these pieces, I think the industry is starting to finally recognize that these are the keys to how we mo- how we move forward. We have to find a way to not only hold on to people but to bring people back in. And while we're also encouraging people to come in. Right? There's that stat about veterinarians what they surveyed veterinarians and 60% of them said they wouldn't recommend this as a career if someone came to or if their kid came to them or if someone came to them and said, "Would you be a veterinarian?" you know, or "I want to be a veterinarian." They would actually dissuade them from entering the profession. I think that's a tragedy. Yeah. But I do see why.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. So many reasons why. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking about, so like I did an externship because this vet med is my second career. I was in art history before this. Mm-hmm. And I did an externship in my senior year of high school with a horse vet, um, Dr. Francie Luther. She was great. She was the vet for all of our horses, like, you know, when I was taking riding lessons growing up and I'd always look forward to her being out there. And I did like ride alongs with her. And um, she pretty much was like, do not do this. <laughs> And she she also had the perspective of a solo equine practitioner who had just gotten associate after 25 years of being on call. So like, she probably wasn't the one to listen to, but she, she really did try to talk me out of it. And it worked like I was, I was a liberal arts major, you know, and then came back to it. And I think that's, that's just sort of a small, tiny little nutshell version of like what, what we see overall in the profession. It's not that people are like running away from vet med because they hate it. It's. It's a work that really is a calling for a lot of people, and they just can't imagine doing anything else but are forced to either to care for themselves or to care for their families or to be able to, like, go home at night sometimes instead of going to be a hostess at whatever restaurant because right. they can't make it. And ends to
3: escape the, escape the toxicity, which is which yes. is there, which is yeah. so prevalent in our in our profession, and it's—I think it's hard with the group of folks we have on this call. Like that, this—these are the like the anathema. These are the antithesis of toxic <laughs> leaders, um, but they are out there, yeah. and that makes it even more difficult. This—the this mean girl ethos, this the clickiness, the you know, eat our young kind of idea. I is, suffered,
1: so you have to also.
3: It's prevalent.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you made a good point also that a lot of times the leaders are not who's best for the position, but who's been there the longest, who knows someone or, you know, it's not always (laughs) the best choice. And that makes a huge difference. I think one of the things that I've always taken pride in is making sure that my whoever follows me knows who I am as a person so that they can make a, a decision on their own if I'm the right leader for them. and They can tell me if they think I'm doing something that they disagree with, or whatever the case may be. But I'm not going to come in and be like, oh, because I've been in, in the field for X amount of years, that I'm your leader. Like, that doesn't make right. sense to me. So, I've been here longer. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> That's
1: well, my I'm spot. Guess, and
3: yeah. Natalie, I'm guessing you can probably look at your statistics and point to, you know, your retention, your turnover rates. And, and I think that is I think that is how we're going to move the needle we can talk until we're blue in the face about psychological safety and the importance of culture and all of that but there are going to be some entities in our profession who are only going to look at the bottom line and i think there's an argument to be made i know that we need data on this i know we need probably some someone out there to do a study on this and you know of looking at that Flourish Veterinary Consulting for mm-hmm. that study. Yep. Um, but I think that we could look at, at how we know how much how much turnover costs. Mm-hmm. And so I think you could find a way to figure out how much psychological safety and a, and a positive environment is actually contributing to the bottom line in Absolutely. terms of attracting people to the practice. Um, like, I don't know, Natalie, you tell me, you know, do you guys have a backlog of of people who want to work at your practice or are you as desperate as everyone out there to find people? (laughs) Well, I I don't know if I can take
2: credit because I haven't been at my current practice very long, just been about a year. But um, I will say that there is a positive culture of, you know, people who come, they really only leave if there's something like a major life event or, you know, some... Reason that's not um, that's not job related that they they tend to leave and I think it's well known that it, we foster a culture of you know everybody's opinion counts um everyone feels comfortable and safe and so I do think that is a huge thing it's of you know not just my leadership in, in specifically but the leadership that they incorporate into the the structure of the the company as a whole I think they don't pick anyone to be a leader within this company. So um, I I do think there's something to be said of that. And, you know, looking back at my leadership in other companies, I have historically taken over, you know, clinics that have been struggling a little bit and, you know, they've had some toxic leadership before me. And so there's been a lot of challenges of changing that mindset and and showing them that you can have a practice manager that cares about you. You can have someone that's going to Put on scrubs and get in, you know, next to you when somebody calls out, and not just say, "Oh well," like <laughs> you know, deal with it. Um, I think that showing them rather than just being that name in the face, I think that has made a huge impact. Um, and I've had technicians come up to me and say, "I'm so glad that you're a technician because you understand." Um, and, and that's not always the case with some some leadership. So, yeah, for sure, for sure, sure.
1: Mm-hmm. and. Here's a, a question because I know there are a lot of places that have good intentions and the execution may be lagging behind the intentions a little bit because life is super busy and stressful and like even if you have a study that says it's worth this much to really work on the the culture of your practice and you know um, really work on psychological safety, it's still hard to prioritize that when you have, you know, a wait list for clients of six weeks and like, you know, somebody's calling out every day or whatever, and you Mm -hmm. still have maybe some toxic team members that you're not really sure what to do with. And how, so like, how would you think or how have you seen that process kind of get jump started? Like where the heck do we start?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it start, I mean, you hear this a lot. It seems kind of trite, but it really does start at the top. So I think if you have a commitment from the leadership and the you know, the top can be your hospital manager. If you're in a, if you're in a corporate chain, you know, yeah. the top is a little bit, it's kind of in the cloud. You don't really understand who is the top. Where is the top? <laughs> right. But you're not you going to get can, the
1: CEO to like right. take a leadership I mean, course.
3: Good. That would be awesome. <laughs> yes. Amazing. But, you know, you, you can start at your level at the hospital. I, I think we can all start at our own level to bring that to, to our work every day. The idea Natalie hit it exactly right. That personal caring, Mm -hmm. you know, I care about you as a person. I want to know what's happening with you as a person. Um, and I, I want you to bring your whole self to, to the to work. I, you know, you hear a lot about, oh, leave, all, leave, leave home at home. And, you know, but I think we all have to bring our whole self to work. At that. Yeah. And if we're struggling outside of work, that struggle is going to spill over into yeah. our work. And I think it's important that. You don't have to share everything i'm not talking about being tmi and like laying it all out on the table but but the the space to be able to say to a coworker, or if you're the hospital manager to your leads or or on down like hey not just the through the treatment area hey everybody doing okay okay great see you later like hey a sit down a check-in once a week once every two weeks how are things going how are you feeling are things do you need is there support you need from us, from the practice? Um, is are, are there things that you see we could change, whatever it might be? Those small steps, it doesn't have to be a big thing, a 10-minute check-in, you know, where you can say to someone, I personally care about you. I am here listening to you. I am connected to you, and I really want to hear what you say. But then I think the bigger piece is the follow-through, mm-hmm. showing mm-hmm. that you actually listened and doing what you can to then demonstrate that you have heard, that you've like internalized this, whatever it is that they've, they've talked about or brought to you, or, or th- they said something is amazing, like how do you do more of that than demonstrating that? Because I think without the demonstration, I think that's where it all falls apart because then people are like, oh, well, they're just another like talking head. They don't really care. They don't, they're not really doing anything. And I think we all have little things that we can do um, no matter our level. But I do think it starts at the top. And I think if the manager starts that that process, and I know we're slammed with clients, we, we feel like we don't have time to do any of these things. And I think we have to make time to do these things. Um, because these are the things that are going to make the biggest difference down the line. Um, it's going to make much more of an impact uh, if you can take a little bit of time every day to demonstrate to people on your team that you personally care about them um, while you're dealing with all of the myriad of other things that come up for a manager that has to, that you have to deal with. But that one pick a team member a day, you know, and take 10 minutes, seven minutes, whatever it might be (laughs) to just like have that personal connection. I think that is, that's where it starts. And then it builds from there because once you start doing that, and people feel more connected. They feel more connected to you. They feel more invested in the practice. They recognize that you are invested in them. They're going to give back. That is what team members do. We want that. Um, when we think about generational differences, I think that's the biggest thing. Millennials, Gen Z, that's what they want. They want to know that they matter, that their work matters that what they're doing has an impact and matters to someone beyond just what they're bringing
1: in in terms of a financial difference. This AHA podcast is brought to you by CareCredit. CareCredit understands that all veterinary teams are busier than ever. To help patients get the care they need, the CareCredit Health and Pet Care Credit Card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere on their own smart device. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on that smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs, whether it be a general, referring, or specialty hospital, as long as they accept the CareCredit credit credit card. That's so true. Technically, I'm Gen X, depending on too. Yeah, tech, depending, but people forget about us anyway, so we might as well just lump ourselves in with the millennials. But, no. um, <laughs> but that that uh, idea of um, of you matter, it, people take it and they distort it into everybody wants a participation prize for just doing their job. But the fact is that I have never seen a group of people as committed and dedicated for so little return as veterinary technicians. <laughs> like. You all have been beaten down for a long time. It is a hard physical job. It's an impossible emotional job. You get basically no recognition from pet owners about it, and very little recognition from the rest of the profession. And you don't even have the sole right to call yourselves veterinary technicians <laughs> at this point. And so it is—it is, it is um, amazing to me how much technicians do for so little, and how absolutely committed as a group you are to stick with it as long as you can and just knowing that so many technicians leave the profession i mean what is the average career like five years or something before people leave and and they almost all say i want to go back but i can't or these things would have to be true if i went back they're already saying them it's already out there it's not a mystery and they're asking for your for like please treat me like a human and pay me enough so that I can pay my bills. Like, that's it. That's literally it. Literally it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I feel like we, I feel like that's a solvable problem. <laughs> I feel like that it's not one of those things. It's like, oh, gosh, what should we do? Like, I feel like we know what we need to do. So why is it so hard for us to do it?
2: I think that's the million dollar question, right? (laughs) I think a lot of us leaders know what the barriers are and we know why they exist. It's the movement that I think is hard. You know, there are so many of us that are trying to take these baby steps in, you know, making a difference within our practice and making a difference within a certain specialty or, you know, whatever we can put our hands on and touch. We're trying to make what little difference we can. Um, but I think until we start to have more of these conversations, more of these, you know, get these podcasts out there, get all of this type of continuous motion with discussing the issues and, and bringing it to light. I think that's what's going to help us get there. It's, it's just really getting every leader in the profession to be like, what can I do? What, what little bit can I do to make a change within my own practice that will contribute to the, the bigger picture?
3: I think there are I mean, there are big systemic things that we can do, but those take real commitment mm-hmm. and leadership that um, I think many people don't feel they have the bandwidth for, The mm-hmm. the or maybe they just feel like, I'm just a lonely technician. What can I do to fix these systemic issues? And I think, Natalie again just spot on it's continuing to have the conversations and finding ways to get yourself into the places where these discussions are happening so you know i'm here on this podcast Natalie's here on this podcast we're talking about it we we have a platform to to amplify the voices of other folks. Uh, But one big way, and I'm just going to put in a plug here for state veterinary technician associations, because I think they are doing huge, they are just doing hugely heavy lifting right now in the profession to fix issues on a systemic basis and really pushing the conversation forward in their own states. And I think that that is the place where, the impact is starting to be felt. And I think that state veterinary medical associations are feeling that a little bit more. And what happens then is it starts to trickle up because if your state vet tech association is out there advocating, you know, in the legislator, in the legislature, at veterinary medical board meetings, having these discussions, making sure that the veterinary medical board is paying attention to credentialed technician issues mm-hmm. in the state and and reminding them what those issues are and like continuing to push that envelope at that level. What happens is the state VMA pays attention to that. They you know, they hear those discussions. They see what's happening. They go to a House of Delegates meeting for the state and they talk about those issues there. And then what happens is that gets up to the AVMA House of Delegates meeting. This is, you know, people say they don't like politics. They don't want to play politics. They, I just want to come to work and do my job. But But (laughs) if we truly want to create the big change, we have to push it from from the grassroots up Mm -hmm. into the areas of the profession where the decisions are really being made. Liz, I'm so glad you
2: said that. I actually the state I'm in, our Veterinary Technician Association dissolved um, within the past couple of years, and it broke my heart because they were doing amazing things, putting on CEs, doing events, and but they just didn't have the support. They didn't have the bandwidth. You know, it was a couple of people doing all of the work um, and just not having a, a pipeline of leaders to follow. Um, and I wonder, is there anything that we can do to kind of encourage that within, you know, the technicians that I would talk to and say, hey, why don't you consider being a part of that? They, just like you were saying, they'd say, well, I," you know, I'm just a technician. What you know? What, what do I have to contribute? I don't. I don't know anything about leadership and things like that. So, wh- I'm wondering what we can do to help encourage that. Encouraging not just being a member of your state association, but you know, taking those leadership roles and and helping, you know, build upon that so that we don't have situations like that. Because you know, I do think that we're feeling a loss in the state that I'm in because of that.
3: Yeah, that makes me so sad. Yeah, I think that. I think um, a big thing that practices can do is actually uh, invest in their technicians and pay their pay the dues Absolutely. for the state vet tech association, because sometimes that's. I mean, the dues are not that expensive. They're sometimes fifty dollars a year, thirty you know dollars, somewhere between like thirty and a hundred dollars a year. So depending on how many technicians you have, it's not it, it's not that huge of an investment. And I think that that is, if you pay their dues, then the practice can say, hey, we've paid your dues to join the association. Have you gone to any of their CE? Have you volunteered to be on a committee? Are you like, how can we also support you in getting more involved in your state association? And maybe it's, you know, we'll pay you half time if you go for the time that you're volunteering. Uh, for your state association, we'll pay you a quarter timer. We'll pay you fifty bucks or whatever it is. Right? You figure out the, the financials and how they work. But that's how you can incentivize people getting involved because you can say, hey, if you're volunteering for your state association, you're I'm you know a member of two VTS academies and I I do a lot of volunteer work for the VTS academies and we incentivize our members to be involved by giving them recertification points. So like mm-hmm. everything they get involved in, they get a little, a little thank you. And, the you know, hey, you can do this and we'll give you a little bit of points that helps you recertify in five years. And I think that kind of a thing is how a practice group, a, how practice leadership can encourage the the folks in their organization to get involved. The other side of that, of course, is helping to make sure they have good, work-life balance, which is what technicians all want, you know, and Katie mentioned it, you know, we want to be paid enough so that we can pay our bills with one job. Mm -hmm. And when you have technicians who are out there having to sell their plasma or do a bunch of work on the side or have three jobs just to get to the end of the month, um, then they can't even conceive of having any time to do anything outside right. of that. So there really is a fundamental systemic and, and like basic issue that they need before they can think about taking that next step and in getting involved. So I think that is, you know, it's number one, making sure they're taken care of, that they're able to work one job, that they, that they are uh, compensated and have benefits that they need to like, survive. Okay, Mm -hmm. now we have that part done. Now we're gonna make sure that you're getting out on time because we're gonna be adequately staffed. We're gonna manage our schedule appropriately so that everyone is doing what they're supposed to do so you can get out on time and utilizing technicians to the full extent helps everybody get out of the practice on time. Um, Don't make your technicians and your assistants be your cleaning staff, like hire janitorial services so that people aren't staying after the hospital is closed to clean bathrooms, to mop floors. Like let's stop having that be a thing and, you know, give other people that work. Uh, And then people are getting home on time then they can they have enough money to pay their bills they don't have to work three jobs then they can start thinking about what can i do how can i get involved to help change things for for more people and that then you can talk about okay we're paying your dues for your state association how are you being involved in in your association what are you doing to to move the needle in the direction we want the profession to go
1: in Listening to you, um, you know, going through sort of that, it's like a, a list of it's like a continuum of like what you can do to make this possible for your for your team members. And none of those things are like absolutely earth shaking, you know, changes like you could be like, oh, janitorial staff, I could look for that now. And that would mean at least one or two staff members might get out earlier every day. Like, that's one thing. And I, I think it's just like so many things where we realize that it's the, the one step at a time approach, like just do the next thing. And maybe not, it is a long game, um, but you can't focus on the end of the tunnel all the time because it is a long tunnel. Like we've been in this tunnel for a long time. <laughs> we live in this tunnel. <laughs> this is where we live. So <laughs> could we at least take a step towards the end of the tunnel this week? Um, and... I was also thinking, you know, when you were saying like, there are, there are so many people that are just doing what they need to do to get by that they can't possibly think of anything they'd rather do less, even if they could find the time than like sit in a room with other technicians, like argue about what we should be doing next, you know, like, let's face it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of strong personalities in those rooms, and there should be, um, because that's how things get done. Um, If everybody's just like, okay, then things, we would all just stay the same, but that means that that selects for only a certain type of person with a certain set of circumstances that's going to be making the rules and helping get things changed. And that has led to a lot of things in vet med that, you know, are, are causing us to stagnate. Um, so people in hospitals where they really haven't historically had a great culture and work-life balance, and they have not been able to empower their teams need to think about this maybe the most because those staff members need to have a voice um, and figure out how to fix the system so that it's not like that forever. And one thing that I've noticed in talking to some technicians is that, like you said, they might say, oh, I'm I'm just one technician, like, what can I do? But they also, and I'm generalizing, obviously, but associate vets are kind of like this too. People have not, empowered them for. And it's not a group of people that I feel like have had people telling them forever, you can do whatever you want, you can make a difference, like no matter what your title is. What can we do about that? Like, how can we get technicians to feel like they can make a huge change, and it's worth their time to try?
2: Yeah, I think it all just goes back to leadership, just having someone in your corner that's encouraging you and, you know, Showing, showing that they see you, that they see your your strengths, that they see what you're capable of. Um, I think that's been something that was missing in my career. You know, early on, it was the same thing Liz was talking about. You just show up, you do your job. You're, you know, you clean the bathroom and you go home. You know, it's it's (laughs) it's (laughs) hard to feel like you have anything to contribute when you're, you know, there's no one that's supporting that. So I think just having uh, whether it is your direct line manager or another technician in, in the clinic, whoever it is that can kind of partner with you and, and encourage you and say, hey, you're really good at that. You should, you know, teach a wet lab on making blood smears or, you know, whatever the case is, encouraging that growth and then showing you that you have something to contribute. I think is a huge part of that.
3: We have to that. continue to remind people there is so much. um we have, a, we have a big self-confidence issue, you know, generally speaking as veterinary technicians, you know, the, the veterinary assistants, veterinary team members, period. The amount of times that I hear or see someone put just in front of their title, um, we have to stop doing that. Uh, we are co-equal members of the veterinary healthcare team. We serve a different role than the veterinarians do, <laughs> and I get that there is a hierarchy in terms of supervision levels and things like that. Um, and I also think that when we work together, that hierarchy is pretty flat in a good in an organization where technicians are utilized fully and respected as professionals. And I think that. It's, it's slowly shifting now to understanding that technicians, credentialed veterinary technicians are professionals who have invested in their profession and in themselves and that they feel, uh, that they feel a sense of duty and responsibility. And that's demonstrated by holding a license to practice. Mm-hmm. And so these veterinarians who say things like, well, it's all on my license. It's, if a mistake happens, like, you know what, it's not because I have a license, that I also have to protect. <laughs> so I would like you veterinarian not to delegate things to an assistant, because guess what? That's my license. If something okay. happens in the practice, that's mm-hmm. on my license too. So, how about we not do that? How about instead we respect each other as, as professionals doing the things that we can do best? So, mm-hmm. or that we're limited to by law, right? Veterinarians do four things they do surgery, they make a diagnosis, or not. They deliver, <laughs> or not. They deliver a prognosis, and they write prescriptions. Mm-hmm. And, and everything else, Depending on the level of supervision, depending on your state law, should be either a credentialed veterinary technician or a veterinary assistant doing those yeah. things. And if we do that, if we truly utilize people, elevate them to their to their full potential, their fullest level of education, skill, knowledge, then... I mean, it's a bit of a chicken and egg, but I do think the respect then comes because you can start proving yourself to what you, what you know, what you can do. Then you're going to be trusted more. Then you're going to be able to do more, to contribute more to the bottom line of the practice, which means that the practice is going to understand your value more until we get to that point where we are, where we stop denigrating ourselves when we stop putting just in front of our in front of our title and really stand up and say i am a proud rvt and i am good at what i do and i know what i know i mastered 240 or demonstrated proficiency in 240 hands-on skills and passed a national exam i can do these things and hey, veterinarian, allow me to do these things. And I am okay starting in a low-risk situation and environment to demonstrate that I can do these things and build trust with you. Uh, and you have to give me the chance to do that. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think that it really is, it's going to take a whole profession-wide like team effort. And we need veterinarians who are supportive of us, to continue to push that with their associates because we're not in those rooms where discussions and decisions get made. You know, if you're in a practice and they have doctor's meetings, you know, I always just hope there's someone in that room advocating for the team, Mm -hmm. whether it be the hospital manager, whoever's leading that meeting, the medical director, someone, you know, so the doctors are complaining, I'm not getting out on time because I can't get my records written, you know, okay, well, what's your technician doing? what's your assistant doing why what is what are you placing catheters are you doing blood draws like what what's the what's what's happening here that is impinging on you being able to get home on time that's affecting your quality of life that you're then coming to you know complain to me as the medical director about uh rather than you know you just need to be more efficient or you need to figure mm-hmm. out how to manage your time better like yep. those are the kinds of the of discussions i think and as those things filter through the profession and it's happening we have younger people coming in more technicians credentialed technicians who have worked really hard to get where they are mm-hmm. are are demanding that kind of treatment and respect which is mm-hmm. so heartening to see and i love to see it and i think those of us who have the ability to have that voice we're in a leadership position or you know we're not dependent on on you know a corporation to pay our bills or whatever it might be, you know, those of us who can speak up uh, on yeah. behalf of others, I think we encourage others to speak up for themselves. And so I think continuing to model that behavior and then not closing the door behind you. Yeah. So we are through, we we have come through a door. Um, and instead of closing that door, we need to reach behind us and pull mm-hmm. more people through the door with us. And uh, I think if we can do that, that's that's how we're going to bring more of those people into these organizations and allow them to flourish in a way that they can
1: really show what they can do. Well, that's kind of a mic drop. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was good. That was good. Yeah. I, and I, I know how do you follow that? <laughs> I, well, and I have I have a yes and to add to yes. that, um, which is then when you've empowered people to speak up for themselves and encourage them to do that and given them the ability to go out and do things you know that they're that they're skilled enough to do don't punish them for doing that <laughs> right um Right. And I speak from experience and also from watching this happen, which is like, oh, you know, then suddenly a technician might be viewed as entitled because they actually do want CE money or they want to go to a training on something and learn how to do ultrasound or something like that. And it's like, you know, how dare she (laughs) (laughs) ask for that money, you know, and it's like you you told her that you valued her. And this is how she's responding. And that means you did a good job. And this is a good thing for everybody. And um, this is something, and I I know it doesn't all come back to gendered issues, but I do feel like because there are so many people in this profession who identify as female and we're taught not to ask for things and to apologize Mm -hmm. if we ask for more than we're offered and that's a whole other conversation but i <laughs> i do think that comes up a lot in this because like negotiating contracts psh, you know psh, i was never God. taught how to do that were you and i grew up with a lawyer dad like so uh, it, it I is i think
3: aha should offer some assertiveness training and uh, <laughs> no. and negotiation training <laughs> i mean go. honestly i think <laughs> it would be so valuable i we should have a whole track of that at, at Aha Con, um, a whole track. On, I am here
1: for that <laughs> on
3: negotiating skills. You know, asking for what you need and how to get it, and you know, and, um, and assertiveness because there yeah. is a difference. There's a fine line, but there's a difference between assertiveness and aggressiveness, and yeah. how do you walk that line, and how how to not be a doormat. And you know, it is. We do have. We know we have the studies to show we have person certain personality types in this profession. And I think those are the personality types who need that kind of training. <laughs> yeah,
1: definitely. Um, the not waiting to bring something up until it's, it's an angry blow up, which was very difficult for some of us to learn and now we can't shut up. So <laughs> that is the downside. It's like, you might have people who actually express their opinions on the regular, <laughs> even when you didn't ask. <laughs> Natalie, I was I'm curious about your experience, because I know Liz and I know each other on social media. And so I see some of the stuff she posts, I'm sure she sees what I post. And I'm always like, I I can identify with this, you know, um, type eights unite. (laughs) But I, um, I was wondering if that's something you've experienced where you've had to grow into being more assertive and asking for what you want, or if you've been perceived as too aggressive, if you have done that.
2: Yeah. And I, I follow Liz on social media as well. So I definitely identify with all the things she said. Well. <laughs> um, but I do think it's it's a good point to bring out that the, pre- the profession is majority female. Right. And so a lot of the coaching that I do with you know, my technicians and the people that are under me is, is speaking up for themselves, because I think that's something that we don't encourage enough. Um, and so it, you're in a weird place when you're, you know, a, a manager. So you have to look at the financial health of the the business, but you also want these people to want more for themselves, right? So like, it doesn't make sense for me as a manager to tell you, you should ask for more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't that doesn't benefit me as a business, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm a business manager. Uh, but I also see these technicians and their they don't know any better because, like you're saying, they want to talk. And so that's become something that I'm really passionate about because I've been there. Um, I have been hired for positions that I should have been paid way more for. I've been hired in positions where my counterparts had the exact same experience, the same responsibilities and were paid more than me. They were white males. <laughs> so, you know, I I do feel like I have that additional layer also of being a woman of color is that I have to be very mindful of you know how I come to the table and how I present myself uh, because there is that kind of the balance like you guys are talking about of not being that angry person, right? but also, you know, I do want to speak up for what I feel like I deserve and what what my value is within the practice. So yeah, it's been it's been something that I've grown into over many, many years, just after realizing and having people that, Poured into me um, other you know women of color within the profession um, veterinarians vet techs others that saw me and saw you know saw themselves in me and were able to help me kind of kind of get to that point where I can still say what I need and I can be firm without being seen as progressive <laughs> because that is definitely a thing so um but I, I don't think it's just a, a you know a racial or ethnic thing I think it it comes down to just us as women we all, are taught, just like you said, that, you know, say thank you, say please and thank you and, and be, you nice. know, be soft. be And these conversations Swab are one. coming back up in like, you know, in the dating world and in, you know, conversations on social media, be feminine, be, you know, be that soft feminine person that we're supposed to be. But that doesn't have to mean that we don't also value ourselves. I think that's a, a huge thing that we need to remind yeah. ourselves.
3: And Natalie, you said it, you had people pour into you. And I love that uh, analogy or or metaphor. And and I think it's so perfect. It's what we need. It's what I strive to do with people I work with is to remind them how amazing they are. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But if you don't have, if instead you have people draining you, you know, pulling the plug out from the bottom instead of pouring more in, um, it's really difficult. And mm-hmm. I think looking for those people, and if you're a leader, being that person to pour into people, reminding them how amazing they are, how far they've come, how, yeah. uh, how they're contributing, um, even when you have to have those difficult coaching conversations, because that's still going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do that and still say, look, you are incredible and amazing, and I see how much potential you have, and that's why I'm having this conversation with you. Because if I didn't see how amazing you were, and if I didn't care about you, I would not have this conversation with you. And that is still, even in that coaching environment, even in the all the things you have to do as a manager and 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 a leader and making sure that things are functioning well um you can still build people up and fill mm-hmm. them up and remind them of those things i'm glad you had people in your life who did that for you um yes. and in your career and i was lucky enough to have people in my career who did that for me too and i think um it makes a huge difference yeah, in in how we can then move forward and bring people up you know not necessarily behind us but alongside us to continue to to advance where we are
1: i i love that whole exchange there's something i was thinking about that in light of my own experience as a very quiet kid who grew into a very loud (laughs) adult somehow and I think one of the biggest things for me that I saw different with good cultures versus not so good cultures was the distinguish the ability to distinguish between what you do and who you are as a person. And Natalie, it goes back to what you were saying when you were, you were talking about being authentic with your team, you know, showing them who you are. And that automatically earns you so much trust. When you're willing to show them, like, if you're having a bad day or you're like, I'm sorry, like, I am not really present right now because I've got something going on and I'm distracted. Like this, this makes you a good leader, not a bad leader, Mm -hmm. because we all bring all that stuff with us and not admitting it just makes us makes it feel like there's a wall between us. And that trust is what allows them then if you give them feedback that isn't maybe, you know, that is constructive it's more about, okay, I see you and you see me. Here's a thing that you do that maybe we could talk about how we could do it a little bit differently. Not you are a person who does this and that's not acceptable. Like, mm-hmm. And I've been treated that way so many times by leaders who just, they kept, put me in a category and said, she is this type of person. And it kept me really afraid for a long time because I would, I was afraid to be you know, to be put in a category I didn't feel like I belonged in. Mm -hmm. And the three of us here, it sounds like have had very similar experiences in some ways, which is that we've been um, sort of taught to, or it's been ingrained in us to keep things to ourselves, because we didn't want to make waves. And we figured out that that wasn't, that wasn't good. Like, we were not about that life. <laughs> and Natalie, you ha- you do have an, an extra component of being a woman of color. Like, I know the statistics, but I can't imagine being in a situation where automatically I sit down at the table and there's something else that's like another box that they put me in. Um, I think as an industry, we do still have a lot of work to do in this area, but we have an advantage, which is there are a lot of women and, you know, people who identify as women in this field. So if we decide as a group to do things differently, it will make a difference. It has to. Um, And I love hearing from two strong women who have navigated this themselves and said, okay, I I know that this is going to be a thing and I'm going to have to figure out how to navigate it. It might not be fair, but we do it.
3: I think that authenticity and like you said, it engenders trust, which Mm -hmm. engenders commitment to the person that you're working for. It makes you if they trust you. Yeah. With that, with that piece of them, with being their true authentic self, then you Mm -hmm. feel I mean, I I, maybe I should just speak for myself. I feel um, more committed to that person. And we know that people leave don't leave jobs. They leave managers. And if I feel committed to my manager. I'm not going to leave. Because I have a fuller understanding of what's going on, where they're coming from, how we can work together. I know they trust me, they're invested in me, and I'm going to invest right back.
1: Yeah. It's a we're in this together, not I'm telling you what to do and then you're telling them what to do, (laughs) which is so much of how vet life is a lot of the time. So, okay, we started out to talk about team retention. Um, specifically technician retention, because I think that's where the the biggest pain is right now. And um, it evolved very quickly into a conversation about good leadership, positive leadership, good culture. And we've sort of wandered off a little bit a couple of times, but it's always come back to that. And that seems very telling. Um, And I have to shout out as well to Josh Weissman, because his book, Lead to Thrive, is you know, it's a fantastic resource. And also being lucky enough to have had Josh in my life as a friend, he is the embodiment of what he describes in this in that book. So if you have not had a chance to hear Josh speak, um, definitely get that done and also pick up that book, um, available in the AHA store. Um, but his whole theory is positive leadership will change this profession. And he gives actionable steps for how to do it, and I feel so strongly in my bones that that's true, and it seems like the two of you do as well. Um, this it's is the
3: absolute key to retention. Yeah. that's why we keep coming back to it.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um. You two do something that at least here you have. I haven't talked to you in person all that much, hardly at all. Natalie, I just met today. Very <laughs> yeah. glad that we did. Um. But. You two have done something on this podcast that Josh does that I think makes him such a believable and trustworthy leader and teacher, which is he is fully present in the conversation, Um, being fully present in a conversation when you're talking to one of your direct reports, um, you know, and really showing that you're listening. And if you can't do that, tell them, tell them why. It's okay if you have like 27 emails coming in and you're like freaking out about something and something's on fire. It's okay. But if not, can you be present for them and really show that what they're saying matters? Because you both have, have given me that feeling today, um, just in this one conversation. And it's really a gift to have a conversation with somebody who is fully there. Um, so if there's one thing you could go forth and do for your team as a leader today, it, it's that. That takes no effort to, to sit down and say, okay, here I am.
2: Absolutely. I I've built this um, kind of system with my direct reports where they know if they were to call me, um, because we have you know different modes of communication, right? If they need something um, taken care of by the end of the week, they'll email me. If they need something by the end of the day, they'll text me. But if they call me, they know that I'm dropping everything that I'm doing because I know it's important that they, they need to speak to me on the phone. Um, and I think that's a huge thing is having that relationship so that We both know on both ends, if I call them, it's the same thing. They're going to make a way to, even if they can't pick it up at that that point, they're going to make a way to call me back right away because if we're putting forth that effort to reach out to you in that way, we know it's important. And I think that's that's a huge thing. I learned that from one of my leaders, building that kind of expectation so that we respect each other's time and we also know, you know, that we value each other in that way.
1: I love that (laughs) so much. Liz, do you have... Anything similar that you've either had a manager tell you or that you've instituted when you've been overseeing I think that, other people?
3: You know, it, I think that is so such an amazing way of um, it's it's a really amazing way of demonstrating your respect, like you said, for their time and also communicating your boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, don't call me. If it's not something that you need me to drop everything for right now, and I think that is an issue that I have dealt with with managers in the past, and I think it is kind of an ongoing issue, is this, um, I don't know, it's a combination of of feeling like you have to do everything, that no one else can do anything, which, of course, it feels not great as a team member um because you know you're capable of helping and and you want to be helpful and so that's one piece of it and also just um like this, I think some people who don't have good leadership training think that they have to be available all the time. That mm-hmm. open door means like 100% availability all the time, like completely boundary boundaryless, boundless, whichever whatever word I'm looking for. <laughs> and I think that doesn't work.
1: No, because <laughs> at least not for have, long,
3: <laughs> right? And if you have that kind of situation, then your people don't understand either. The people you're leading don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I think having that set up for the team so that they understand. If my phone rings and it's Natalie's name on there, I better answer this because it's something really important because she wouldn't call me if it weren't something really important. Mm -hmm. And that that is a two way street. I -hmm. think that is so amazing, especially today with all of the ways we have to communicate with each other in the work environment. Um, I just think that's that's just an incredible way of communicating that, that boundary and also the respect, like you said, for someone's time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I love that. And I wish more leaders had that kind of training or at least the ability to set something like that up. Uh, because so many times your phone rings and you're like, I don't even know, like I'm one of these people who gets that adrenal squeeze. When yep. I see the manager's <laughs> yes. name on my, <laughs> on my yep. phone, I'm like, I'm not sure what's coming. And that's the other piece of it is there's an expectation. Now, you know, okay, if this, like the phone is ringing, it's not because she's going to yell at me for some, something I forgot to do during my shift or some, you know, yeah. that's not what's going to be. It's something that needs my attention for a reason right now that's really important, but it's not going to be something that's like leading me down a path of destruction, I
1: guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true, though. Like you can yell at somebody, um, you know, but it doesn't have to. It's not an emergency. <laughs> so.
3: It rarely is. I mean,
1: feedback should be immediate, but like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, maybe the yelling could like cool off a little bit before, you know, So it's not actually yelling, but yeah. <laughs>
3: And I think that's the kind of thing it's it all comes down to respect, communication, um, demonstrating that personal caring and that you do that by respecting someone's boundaries. And I think Mm -hmm. that's so key. And that is that's what people that's what people want in the workplace. Yeah. That and to be able to work one job. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) respect A living wage. Yes. Let's start there. That's how we that is <laughs> we how we just had, people. We could have <laughs> just had a three second <laughs> podcast. <laughs> what do we need? Respect, living wage. Bye-bye. The Bye. end. Yeah, that's it. Done. <laughs> but so much harder in practice always than it yeah. is. And and if if you can't pay people as much as you would like to pay them, living wage still important. But mm-hmm. even if you'd want to pay them more than you're able to, the respect will go a long way there. None of us got into this field to be rich and um, you know, pay, being able to pay bills is important. Also, going to work and coming home every day with the feeling that you're appreciated for the person you are, very important. That's exactly um, it. Yeah. Uh, so, Natalie, I know um, you have to run here. And so I think yes. <laughs> this is a place we lost Heather. She was like, Bye bye. You guys could have done this in three seconds. <laughs> I'm out. Uh, we lost Heather to technical difficulties. So I'm very sad about that. Um, but we'll get her back on. Um, she's, she's committed now. Um, but Natalie, would you give our listeners a place, um, where they can find out more about you or learn what you're working on or where you work? Sure. I, um, I don't really have a lot out there on social media Power <laughs> two, <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's not, um,
2: curly hair related. So hair. Definitely... <laughs> <laughs> uh, But I do have a vet tech page on Instagram, so you can follow that. It's natalie.v.rvt. Um, so that. Is my like professional Instagram page. <laughs> um, I'm gonna try to do better about updating that because I, I do tend to do more of the, the curly hair content than vet tech stuff. But it's
1: <laughs> also important. Um,
3: yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the curly hair content. <laughs> <laughs> I wish uh, I had
1: curly hair to need curly
3: uh, hair content. You can follow me. I'm uh, at Liz Houston, H U G H S T O N on Instagram. And it's, you know, a mix of, um, vet tech stuff and then what Instagram is, like pictures of my pets and food I eat. stuff like that. So authenticity. there's a lot of authenticity.
1: That is for sure.
3: Um, A lot of Enneagram content too. But uh,
1: I I always appreciate that. Makes me feel less alone.
3: (laughs) And then because I'm, you know, an old white lady, you can find me on Facebook. Also at Liz Houston. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, thank you both. This is so much fun. And I'm sorry we lost Heather, but I really, you are both, um, shining lights. And I really, I feel optimistic too, about where the profession and veterinary technicians, especially are headed with people like you at the home. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for spending this time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit AHA.org. That's a a h a dot o-r-g